0: Today's readings are first taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 36, and that's on page 1096 of the Church Bibles. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, And God's grace was so powerfully at working them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So, as Martin said, we're on week six of our series, The Rooted Disciple, based around the book, whichever version that you've got, called The Radical Disciple by John Stott. Two more to go after this. and I'm just wondering how you're finding it. How's it going for you? I hope it's going well. I've just been wallpapering my living room. I was 16 the first time I wallpapered, a big 1960s yellow flower pattern. It was only when I'd finished that someone pointed out the importance of a plumb line. It's a heavy weight, if you don't know if you don't do decorating, it's a heavy weight on a piece of string that you use to make sure that that first strip of paper on each wall hangs vertically. And it makes all the difference. I just pretended that I quite liked that yellow flower sloping down the wall. There is a point. The prophet Amos is given a vision of a plumb line to show how far out of line God's people had moved from his purposes. God had had enough of their idolatry, their dishonesty, their empty worship, and their treatment of the poor. And he was holding up the plumb line And they were definitely well-off vertical, just like my wallpaper. And I feel a bit like this series has been a bit of a plumb line for me, reminding me of the life of sacrifice, which may involve suffering, but, but this life of sacrifice to which I'm called to live. The call to be different, the call to be like Jesus, the call to grow in maturity, as I've become, hopefully, more like Jesus. And I've been reminded of what Jesus has done for me, of what God has in store for me, and of the beautiful world that I've played my part in damaging, but which still speaks of the creativity and generosity and awesomeness of our creator, God. And for me, the series has overlapped and built on previous weeks as we've gone through it, And I'm hoping, as it all beds down, that I will be a little bit different, a little bit more rooted, and a little bit more like Jesus, a little bit more in line with God's plumb line. But that's all what's gone before. Another week, another chapter. Today, a simple life. Often nowadays, we think about living simply, Being associated with living more greenly, and and we covered that subject last week, is about reducing our environmental footprint. But the passages that we heard, and, and John Stopp's chapter, point to a much thornier subject that we don't really like to talk about. The subject of wealth and possessions and the call to generosity. As Christians, we believe that we have a new life. Most of us, I think, will be familiar with the verse in Galatians that says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We've received a new life in Christ as believers. But life and lifestyle can't be separated. If as Christians we've received a new life, should we not also be living a new lifestyle? So what lifestyle is appropriate then for the believer? What are its characteristics? In particular, how is it distinguished from the life of those who make no profession of Christian faith? I got to speak about Christlikeness a couple of weeks ago and, and of my desire for people to see Christ in me. And so I'm wondering, is our Christ-likeness seen not just in our character, but in how we live our lives and how we use our time and money? Is my lifestyle any different to those who don't know Jesus? The two passages we heard read address two different lifestyle areas that we're going to look at. And I kind of get the feeling that talking about our lifestyle choices is a little bit of a taboo thing in the church. For some reason, we're perhaps more comfortable considering our character than our lifestyle. Certainly, I know that I've been feeling uncomfortable all week about the prospect of speaking about it. I wonder if it's because we can get away with being nice when we're around other people. But it's hard to pretend that we're living this simple Christ-like life when the extravagance of our lives is so obvious. So in the recognition of a, a taboo subject, I'm calling the first of a transformed lifestyle, my first point, the C word. C, standing for church, or more specifically, the church as a close community or a family. From our reading from Acts, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. I find that a really attractive picture, and I'm clearly not the only one. A similar passage in Acts 2 concludes, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It seemed that the way those early apostles, those early disciples lived brought others into the kingdom. The attractiveness of that community, of that life together, drew people in. We read in verse 34 that there was no needy person among them. As a church, I don't think we're too bad at looking after each other here at Christ Church. And I know of practical needs that have been met in different ways over the years. I remember chatting to a non-Christian friend who I knew from when my children were at school. And she lived opposite one of our church families. And she commented on noticing the practical help and support that this particular family had received from church people following a really bad accident. She'd noticed that this was different. A pay tribute to Joanne Rose, and I'm sure we all do, and the pastoral team in particular. They are amazing. The pastoral care team are amazing. Thank you. It's a bit of an aside, really, but personally, I think we're probably better at offering help and support than we are at admitting that we need it or asking for it, which I think is sad. And I also wonder if our sense of community or family is strong enough here in Christchurch for us to really know and see the needs of our brothers and sisters in our midst if they're not going to own up to it and ask for their help. Maybe that's something we need to think about and be working on. But back to the main point, verse 32 tells us, no one claims that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. John Stott suggests that the generosity of our making our goods and ourselves available for people in need, rather than grasping them tightly as our own possessions, is, and I quote, an indispensable characteristic of every spirit filled church. Generosity is an indispensable characteristic of every spirit-filled church. I want to be part of a spirit-filled church. Many years ago I, I read a book by Tom Sign called Why Settle for More and Miss the Best? And one of the themes of that book was about living in a shared community with shared belongings, freeing up money that could be given to the poor. At the time, I really liked the idea. I was really attracted to that idea. I mean, do we really all need to own a lawnmower or a wallpaper stripper or whatever it is? But now, as I've aged and You know, I've got my family and my home, and I look around at the possessions that I've amassed. And I realize that instead of sharing generously, I'm holding on to things more tightly than I really want to. How my ideals have slipped. The Bible teaches that everything that we own belongs to God. All that we have has been given to us by him. And it's right to enjoy it. It'd be wrong to reject the gifts of God. But I think we also need to hold everything that we have on an open hand for God to use for his glory and for others' good, not clenching it and holding it tightly for ourselves. One more thought from the Acts passage. Remember, we're talking about the big C, the church community, the church family. In these early chapters of Acts, pretty much the whole Christian church was in Jerusalem. All the brothers and sisters in Christ were part of that same community. But as the gospel spread, that God-empowered desire to give to the needs of their brothers and sisters elsewhere continued we can read in Paul's letters about his encouraging them to give and to, to get together a gift for him to take to other believers. And we read about his thanks when they give to him and when they give to others. So John Stott encourages those of us who are affluent in any part of the world to do more to relieve the needs of the less privileged believers in other parts of the world. And it's good to know that at Christchurch, a proportion of our mission budget goes to support believers in Kenya and Bolivia in particular. But that brings us to our second taboo subject the M word money. It's harder. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it hard? I suggest three reasons. Firstly, when we're rich, it's easier to trust in what we have and find security there. Being comfortably off even can reduce our dependence on God and increase our dependence on ourselves. So we become more self-dependent than God-dependent. Our security is in ourselves. Wealthy, self-reliant, well-provided for people have a much harder time humbling themselves and admitting their need for God. Secondly, I think our earthly riches can become too great a focus of our time and our energy. Rather than experiencing freedom in Christ, we spend too much time gaining riches, looking after our riches, worrying about our riches, building bigger barns to put our riches in. Thirdly, I think earthly riches can cause us to sin. They can encourage the sins of greed, covetousness, when we desire what others have, and selfishness. They can also involve us in environmental damage, as we blindly amass goods that are made in ways that harm the world. They can involve us in oppression, when what we buy is made by people who are unfairly treated, or who work in dangerous and appalling conditions. This is the challenge of materialism that we touched on in an earlier talk. Materialism entraps us, binds us, and weighs us down. It's a hard taskmaster. The call to living simply brings freedom. John Stott strongly denounces environmental destruction, wastefulness, and hoarding, but speaks instead of an inner freedom from the seduction of riches, an inner freedom of the seduction from the seduction of riches. So, how do we avoid the, that seduction? Where do our own temptations lie? Are there some catalogues or magazines or websites? We need to avoid to reduce that temptation. I found out yesterday I need to not take my husband into cycle shops. We went to buy a new helmet yesterday. He'd had a a bit of an accident in the week and needed to replace his helmet. And he came back thinking, Ooh, maybe I could, mm, I like that bike. Anyway, sorry Pete, you didn't even know I was going to say that. (laughs) Hmm? In order to avoid wastefulness and hoarding, are there things that I need to sell or to give away? Money that I could give away in order to meet someone else's need, as well as helping me to live more simply myself. Then that passage also asks, how do you define someone who is rich? Well, The answer has to be, doesn't it, somebody who's got more money than I have? Perhaps who's rich? It's not a great answer, is it? I was discussing this talk with someone on Tuesday and saying how I was wrestling with it. As we talked about it, they suggested that perhaps I could give out some rules or a checklist that we could measure ourselves against. I don't think it works like that. I can't answer the question, who is rich, or at what point you can be described as rich. But maybe between me and God, or you and God, we can prayerfully and honestly examine our lifestyles, pray about our finances, and ask God in his grace to work out what our Christian lifestyle should look like, what our Christian response should be. John Stott says similarly about rules. He says, well, he begins a sentence We lay down no rules or regulations. He ends the sentence. But in view of the fact that about 10,000 people die of starvation every day, we determine to simplify our lifestyle. In view of the fact that 10,000 people die of starvation every day, we determine to simplify our lifestyle. Don't pull your punches, John. I'm standing in for Ben this morning. So, a poor man goes to a rich person's house and says that he will do anything for a hundred pounds. The man tells him, If you repaint my porch, I'll give you a hundred pounds. Three hours later, the man says, He's finished. Seeing no paint on his porch, the rich man says, I'm not paying you. You didn't do anything. The poor man replied, Yes, I did, but it's not a Porsche, it's a Mercedes. (laughs) I think maybe I'll leave the jokes to Ben. (laughs) If you're reading John Stott's book alongside the talk, you might have noticed, or you will notice that his chapter on the simple life is different from his other chapters. The majority is a summary of a report drawn up after consultation with 85 evangelical leaders from 27 countries on what it meant to live a simple life. Named on the report, are John Stott as chairman and Ron Sider as convener. Some of you might have remember reading or might have heard about Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. I think it was about in the 1970s. I I know I read it as a fairly young Christian. These 85 leaders from both the rich and poor nations spent four days together worshipping, studying the scriptures, praying and listening to each other's stories before writing the report entitled An Evangelical Commitment, to simple lifestyle. And that's why some of the quotes begin, we rather than I. It's an agreed position that these leaders came to, not just John Stott. And to be honest, I don't think I've done the chapter justice. But even if you don't have the book, you can read the summary document. I think it's about three pages long. It's not too long, and it is online. If you want to explore the topic of simplicity from a Christian perspective a little bit more, and if you're willing to risk being challenged out of a position of complacency. But I recommend it because I think there are other elements to living simply included in that chapter that I haven't even touched on. And I will put the link for it on the WhatsApp group this afternoon, and and Phil's going to put it alongside the video. So, hopefully, you should be able to get it. If you don't get it from there, just contact me anyway. But let me summarize what I think I've said. I believe that as a Christian, I'm called to a simple lifestyle that is distinctively different. A simple lifestyle, a generous lifestyle, an outward looking lifestyle. I believe that my new life in Christ is not compatible with greed or selfishness or looking only to my own interests. And I believe and I want to live as if Jesus is Lord of my time, my possessions, my money, and I desire to use them in his service. But I fail. It's not easy It's not easy to do. It's not always easy to discern what God would have us do. And so we can just carry on as normal when actually God wants us to do something different. So let me pray for you as we finish, and and not just for you, but for me too. Dear God, I pray that you will forgive us for our greed and our selfishness. We ask that you would give us the wisdom and grace to know your will. Dear God, help us to be faithful in living a simple lifestyle that is honouring and pleasing to you. And in doing so, may we be a visible, attractive witness to you and draw others into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
2: I'd like to say a prayer, it's kind of, maybe it's a bit personal, so if you can join in with it, please do, and if it leaves you cold, that's okay, please feel comfortable. Father God, don't give up on me. I've listened this morning and I'm trying to hear. Help me when I don't hear properly. Forgive me when I avoid the tough challenges. You say it's hard for the rich to enter your kingdom and I know that means me. As you open my ears to that warning, please open my heart so that I can open my hands. Save me from complacency. I don't ask you to make me feel comfortable. Only your Holy Spirit can enable me to mean it when I say I offer you my life as a living sacrifice. Fill me anew, fresh, every day that I can truly live the simple lifestyle of a disciple of Christ. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and those for whom we pray. Today, this week and forever. Amen.